This is the Colloquium Podcast, produced by the MIT Comparative Media Studies Program, and it's September 27th, 2010. I'm Andrew Whitaker. We start this semester's podcast series by welcoming new CMS professor Fox Harrell, whose groundbreaking Imagination, Computation, and Expression Lab begins its work at CMS this fall. And join us throughout the semester for Colloquium, Thursdays at 5 p.m. You can check the schedule on our website, cms.mit.edu, and as always, catch our podcast on the site or in the iTunes store. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Beth Coleman. I'm a professor in the uh, writing program and CMS. And it's really my pleasure to introduce Fox Harrell tonight. So Fox is um, an associate professor of digital media here. And he is in comparative media studies, writing program, and CSEL. So he's spread over three different places. And when you hear more about his work, you'll understand why and uh, how kind of magical that all is. So Fox has been working for some years now on uh, a concept of phantasmal media, where he thinks about computing uh, with the addition of training in cognitive science and also digital arts. He's thinking about uh, an imagination computing, where it's the subjective, the cultural, and the critical coming together, and hopefully creating some new spaces in terms of would you say digital identity, or is it a, even a broader sense of identity? Uh, right, it's, it's a broader sense of identity, but I'll get into that. In okay, so he's going to get into that. Um, Fox, uh, he has a PhD in computer science and cognitive science, but he also has degrees in um, interactive telecommunication, arts, um, logic, and computing, and he comes here with a NSF career grant. So. Um, Let's welcome Fox, and when he's done, let's have some time for questions. Welcome, Fox. Uh, thank you. <laughs> so thanks, uh, Beth, for the gracious introduction. So I'll start with a question uh, uh, here. So where is in computer science the field of artificial intelligence was founded, though it's changed since, with the base, on the basis of trying to emulate rational human intelligence? What's the uh, analogous unifying field in the humanities that seeks to understand? Well, how can the computer support human imagination and expression with the same facility and power as in the literary or other arts? So what would such a field uh, take? So such a field would need to account for the computer's ability to dynamically change its meaning representations algorithmically and data structurally, while at the same time taking taking heed of theories of uh, interpretation of culture, and crucially, philosophical accounts asserting limitations of the computer's ability to deal with contingent and constructed human meanings. So this is a central theme of my research agenda. So what do I mean by all of this? So let's take an example. So some of you might know this uh, iPhone interactive narrative game called Ruben and Lullaby. So it's a game in which you stroke the screen in, which, uh, in order to calm the protagonist down or shake the device in order to uh, agitate them and make them angry at one another. So of course, quite different than kind of real world embodiments such as in the August Wilson play at Jitney shown here where probably showed, show anger using a greater range of embodied affordances than just uh, stroking the other person with one, with one uh, finger, right? 
you know, but what's happening in Ruben the Lullaby in some ways is an amazing cognitive uh, feat, right? So we're not literally shaking the characters as a kind of a giant antagonist uh, for them, right? We're not just uh, making the characters shake each other, uh, right? So it's a kind of metaphorical mapping. So the notion that uh, anger is a kind of losing control that might involve shaking is mapped to your actions and then to the character's emotions within the narrative world. So a, a question we could ask here is, well, how could gesture be used expressively with a device to forward narrative? So it's a lot different question than you might ask in a computer science field, like a com human-computer interaction, where you just want to characterize operations you can perform through, through gesture. Uh, right, so we could also ask, how could an AI system help to ensure greater coherence of the story uh, here? So I have ongoing research supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities to look at this kind of question. I call it the speakerly interactive narrative uh, uh, project, and where we're really looking at the kind of rhetorics of the body and how that can forward storytelling. So does anyone know who, who this is? Right, no, so this, this is an environmentalist named Grey Owl. So Grey Owl was, was a, a white British uh, American named Archibald uh, Bellany. So, he actually claimed that he was a uh, uh, native, uh, uh, that he was half a, a pot, Apache, half Scottish, right? He learned uh, uh, First Nations languages, right? So he completely tried to immerse himself in, in uh, culture, right? Uh, as I mentioned, actually, he was from uh, the UK. So it was a type of ethnic passing, right? In the humanities, it's well known, right? This notion of, uh, of uh, passing, right? Sociology has explored this idea, but What's a similar analog in digital media? Right, in World of Warcraft, just reskinning uh, a character as a pirate, for, for example, right, trite stereotypes of, uh, of uh, native sovereignty in a game like World of Warcraft. This is an actual uh, Facebook page, right? Some kind of naive opt-in, opt-out model of a kind of dangerous stereotype of noble savage, right? So there's a big schism between the kind of uh, nuanced, if deceptive, kind of self-presentation that Grail takes up and the kind of opt-in, opt-out, menu-driven, field-driven representation here or just graphical model plus skins and, and the kind of typical uh, semiotic uh, stereotype in uh, World of War Warcraft. So my work in general focuses on two areas, right? So narrative, right? how can we engage the rich world of human narrative expression and social identity, right? So the kind of nuanced things that humans do in, in the real world because someone like Grey Owl would have to adjust uh, discourse, body language, fashion, uh, right? uh, facial expression, right? Uh, much, much more than just the sort of things that are going on in, in Facebook. So a part of this is, is enacting, using the system, and another part of it is uh, the affordances of the system. So in general, with this kind of narrative and social identity-oriented work, prioritizing subjective, cultural, and critical applications of technology that foreground ambiguity and interpretation and human authorship is, is my aim. But importantly, I'm interested in foregrounding these kind of ambiguous and interpretive aspects of media using the dynamic, procedural, and interactive nature of, of the medium. So this, in my systems, it's not that the computer is somehow autonomously generating text. 
It's the idea that a human author can create a kind of digital text which is different each time you read it. So different based on cultural metaphor, different based on emotional tone, different based on uh, values, meanings, kind of ethical concerns, etc. So I introduced the phantasmal media concept as a way to focus, to focus on mental imagery, concepts, ideology, as a support to make uh, digital media more improvisational and meaningful. So to focus on balancing semantic formalization with human subjectivity. So when I say phantasm, think uh, mental imagery plus uh, social construct. Right? We can pin it down a bit further. So tracing the notion of phantasm back to Laplanche and Pantelie, and there's this early notion from literary uh, theory. Right? So the phantasm uh, uh, as that which the uh, neurotic so willingly uh, withdraws. So that's this kind of social construct idea defined uh, and uh, taken up later by philosophers like uh, Gilles Deleuze. So the phantasm often seems to compress, to oppress and confine rather than empower, and even no noting that our senses of community, identity, values, which often are quite divisive, are in fact phantasmal as well. The linguist Otto Santayana calls these kind of phantasms uh, that could create new and empowering uh, kind of identities or stories, insurgent metaphors. So part of what I'm interested in here is using the same technology to develop a kind of insurgent metaphor that can critically inform. So phantasmal media can include many forms, right? So games, interactive narratives that dynamically change based on uh, metaphor, affect, et cetera, as I've mentioned. Social networking profiles and avatars, characters that change dynamically based on social categories or fluid movement between communities. And as Beth mentioned, so my approach can be boiled down to how can you look at computing and focus on the subjective, cultural, and critical uh, uh, possibilities. So subjective computing, so that's this idea that uh, computing can serve expressive goals. So again, improvisation or interpretation, which are quite different than usability or productivity-oriented goals. So as, uh, a, as a way to approach this idea of subjective computing, I'll look at interactive storytelling and uh, poetry systems in order to situate my own work. So I'll make an analogy with uh, composing music. So writing procedurally is often more akin to creating a score that must be interpreted. Right? That's, so creating a specification for content as opposed to specific uh, content itself. So an exemplary work, would, if non-interactive, would be Italo Calvino's If on a Winter's Night a Traveler. So it's a story that, tell, that uh, starts off describing you're about to read Italo Calvino's If on a Winter's Night a Traveler. So you're in the second person. Smoke drifts across the, the pages. And as you go through the story, you actually find that in the uh, subsequent chapter, it describes that you have nothing but uh, blank pages ahead of you. So it narrates that you go and have to get a new book, which has another completely different chapter. But actually, that structure is completely algorithmically uh, specified, much like uh, a programmatic composer would do. 
So furthering this idea, many interactive narrative works use a model uh, similar to a pro Vladimir Propp's Morphology of the Russian Folktale, which essentially tries to bo boil down stories into a set of formal components, so uh, building blocks, a very small number of functions. So these are really like conventional jazz songs in some way, right? So you have solos and chord changes, but the structure is largely uh, constrained, right? And there's a limitation of this approach, so you quickly run into roadblocks. So it works with very fine-grained kind of assets uh, and can be and can have a lot of variability, but at the same time, if you have a lot of uh, video fragments that are already created, the story becomes uh, uh, largely incoherent or it becomes unreplayable. So next we have the case of structure with some kind of room for interpretation. So this would be something like, uh, on one hand we have Grema from the field of semiotics, semiotic square, so it describes a kind of oppositional logic that he sees is at the heart of a lot of kind of narratives. And on the other hand we have uh, Charles Mingus's Fables of Fabus, so it has a kind of uh, composed uh, space, but it also has room for chaotic, chaotic improvisation. And interestingly, with the chanting here, he's making a kind of critical message. So ch chanting out against uh, Orville Fabus, the Arkansas governor who uh, notoriously opposed uh, integration. So we have another case uh, here. So uh, there's a storytelling system by uh, uh, Jim Meehan, which is called Tailspin, that uses planning algorithms in order to tell stories. So in this case, stories are really just the output of a kind of a search tree. So you just have stories about bears trying to get honey and achieving that or not, or possibly falling to a river and drowning. So they're quite banal stories. In parallel, the composer Anthony Braxton has a huge range of notational systems for, for his, his music. So he has a list of sound classifications and nearly 100 different kinds of classifications, such as curve sounds or gurgle sounds or pedal sounds. And he has his own visual uh, language to describe how these sounds and how they can be combined. So the idea here is we have a kind of symbolic uh, representation, but we need human interpretation in order to make sense of the composition. So another kind of uh, model could be that of game structure with variable content. So to give a very oversimplified uh, uh, description, some of you uh, know Aro uh, uh, Nick Montfort, uh, work in interactive fiction here. So his curve ship system uses a kind of model of narrative structure based on narratology from, from literary theory. Similarly, John Zorn's uh, uh, music deploys symbols that are flashed to performers to guide improvisation. So in this case, we have a kind of convention for uh, integrating game-like elements into rules for changing style at uh, runtime. So Michael Matias and Andrew Stern's facade is a kind of interactive drama that has a different kind of structure. So in this case, it's based on a kind of Aristotelian story structure, so a very classic kind of story structure. Uh, but we have room to improvise on top of it. So you can just type in whatever you want to say in natural uh, English language, and uh, you can move wherever you want in the space. So it's this idea that we have uh, a kind of uh, unpredictable, natural human input, but we at the same time have some kind of uh, uh, set structure in which that can take place, much like Anthony Braxton's compositions here using another system where you have a traditional score and then these kind of cloud-like spaces where you have the kind of messy, subjective, uh, human uh, interpretation coming in. 
And I might say that my own uh, griot system could be called structured knowledge plus room for interaction to guide the narrative or poetic. So we have, uh, in, in this case, uh, uh, something like sound classifications uh, of Braxton, but he also has a kind of pictorial language built into to his uh, system. Uh, so we have both some conventional elements as well as some kind of more abstracted components. So I'll leave the analogy uh, here and describe a little bit of what the system actually does. So, right, so Griot system is a platform for uh, implementing computational storytelling systems such as interactive narratives or games that can fix a theme or a metaphor but generate say affective tone or say specific uh, specific composition on the fly. So it essentially allows you to construct a kind of description of some kind of story world, annotate your own uh, assets, say, uh, text or video or animation, and then construct new knowledge on the fly. So it's related to this artificial intelligence problem of knowledge engineering, but, uh, but at the same time, there's uh, something uh, different here. So the, so the idea is that we want to make the systems more lyrically responsive to the, the human imagination, deciding what it makes sense to represent computationally, and then where is the kind of space for human users to, to interact with it. So here's an example of a kind of text-based uh, uh, poetic system. So. It, it's a system called loss under sea. It's a parable for the weight of everyday uh, banal life and the loss of humanity it can entail. So the idea is you have this uh, journey uh, as the world sinks below the waves, the user enters verbs associated with different emotional tones and that guides the, the tint of the, emotion, of the generated text. So at the beginning I wake in bed and, I, and you can choose different actions like stretch, scratch, sleep or stare. I indicated the emotional tone just to, to make it easy to, to read here, but say I stretch, then I, move, I can move to the shower space. I have options like to cleanse, scrub, uh, soak, etc. At the breakfast table, I can consume uh, or just uh, eat or nibble. And at the same time, we have a character that dynamically changes based on the emotional tone of, of uh, what you've selected. So we have poetry that's tinted according to the emotional tone, and then also your own kind of dynamic transformations. So I'll run just, just a, a moment of this. So Don, many changes, loves to phantoms, paperwork to butterfly stroking, and air to water from my bed, I. So we can choose which of the different uh, options that we, that we like here. So stare. I get up, my mind is always a still-hearted, August being mind. A lot of seawater lands on my upper lip from somewhere. I never shower slowly, I just. And as we move into the shower space, we have a new set of options. So the options are determined by the context where we are, and the text that's generated is determined based on the context where we are, as well as the kind of emotional tone that you've uh, selected. So the idea is that rather than being driven by something like object acquisition in most games or combat, we're driven by changing emotional uh, tone. And the text isn't just pre-scripted uh, uh, and drawn from a database. It's so actually generated using a kind of conceptual blending algorithm, for a kind of AI approach. So we've chosen a peaceful option here. 
Steam floats my satisfied washer anxiousness away. The air shimmers a bit in the dim cube for eating eye. And the system goes on until you have a kind of narrative conclusion that going back home to the bed as a uh, starving television watcher at the, end, at the end of the day or whatever kind of emotional tone that you've chosen. And there's a huge range of possible transformations that, that you could undertake based on uh, the, the kind of emotional decisions that you've made. So in, in the, looking at the kind of themes of affect or uh, metaphor, we could say that even though we're using AI uh, models here, this, this type of system exemplifies a kind of subjective computing. So rather than using AI approach in a kind of utilitarian uh, way, like an expert system for medical diagnosis, we have a similar kind of structure, but we're actually generating uh, variable uh, text. So I'll talk a bit about what I think, what I see as cultural computing. So cultural computing entails engaging commonly excluded uh, values and practices that could potentially spur computational innovation and ground expressive computational production. So the idea is that cultural practices and values are implicitly built into all computational systems, but it's not as common to create systems with explicit engagement with uh, those kind of cultural forms that are less privileged in engineering uh, discourse. So we're starting with the observation that all technical systems are cultural systems, which may be controversial for some. So this is uh, uh, the von Neumann machine, so the stored program architecture that's in uh, nearly every comp computing system that we have uh, nowadays. So you might think that even something like the von Neumann ma machine should, could be seen as a kind of a, a uh, cultural system. Well, it's just a, a straw man, so the idea is if we go back and look at the kind of original literature that von Neumann produced, so he describes the, the von Neumann machine as ideally as a kind of very high-speed computing device that should be constructed using vacuum tube elements, so clearly set in the kind of historical context of its time. He goes on to describe the kind of machine's uh, organs, right, the input and output organs. So this idea that there's a metaphorical mapping that he's relying on in order to articulate the system that really hasn't persisted to this day. So in our practices, what, what we like to do is foreground the, the cultural grounding of the work explicitly. And so as I moved from some of the text-based work to visual work, we needed uh, new uh, theory. And so one of the key places to look was at, uh, at Chinese iconography. So there's, there's a researcher named Masako Hiraga who is actually looking at metaphor and icons and the way in which you have visual representations that also com combine with uh, conceptual information and, and how, how, this, uh, how this works, right? So you might have, in Japanese uh, language, you might have uh, two kanji uh, characters representing the sky and say the sand separated by the ocean in one line of haiku where you actually have uh, hiragana uh, text in between. So you have a kind of visual separation of the sky and the sand that's quite similar to uh, the conceptual uh, representation. So there's actually a cognitive science approach looking at these kind of visual conceptual analogs, and we use that to guide a kind of artistic project as well as research project called the uh, Generative Visual Rinku Project. So we looked at issues like uh, Japanese Rinku poetry, a kind of co-constructed haiku, uh, iconicity of Chinese characters, uh, some uh, AI knowledge representation approaches, as well as generative models of contemporary art. 
we had two aims with this work. So the first one was artistic aim. So we're thinking about issues of modularity and, uh, and consumption. But the research agenda really was looking at the modularity of meaning and how we can recombine uh, meanings on the fly. So just a bit of background. So Rinku, as I mentioned, is a kind of co-constructed haiku. So I might create one verse, you could create the next verse. And there are kind of rules to create links and shifts between, uh, between successive verse verses. So we implemented a kind of uh, a digital version of this. So we thought about what kind of links and shifts could, could exist. So you could have uh, links and shifts at the kind of visual level, at the conventional uh, level, like uh, uh, closed edge, or wide shot, or medium shot, and at the conceptual level, like transportation related or water related. Uh, what, uh, this distinction is actually coming from the field, the field of semiotics for uh, th those interested. So the image diagram a metaphor uh, distinction by, by Peirce. But we started thinking about how you could use an algorithm to do something like linking and shifting in, in Rinku poetry. As I mentioned, uh, Hiraga argues that uh, metaphor and iconicity are closely related. So uh, when we hear a metaphor, we can imagine a kind of visual image. Like when I say his head is stuffed full of ideas, we can conjure a, a kind of uh, concept. And reversely, re conversely, we have icons that capture some metaphorical uh, concepts, such as uh, the character here. So looking at the, the typology that, that I mentioned above, we noticed that there are kind of images, diagrams, uh, metaphors, and uh, sort of different ways that we can characterize the way that images can be recombined. And we constructed a kind of art project that was like a, top, a topographical drawing, uh, a kind of poetic uh, landscape. So I'll just let it uh, run just a, a bit as a kind of generative artwork. So unlike the other system, this one is not meant to be a kind of narrative or a textual uh, poetic system. Right? It's just a kind of associations between iconic uh, images and that add some kind of a connection between them. We have a character that walks through the space picking up the a kind of tool related to where the character has been. So going through huts, picking up a, a kind of farming implement, going through the amusement park ride, picking up uh, mouse ears. Uh, uh, etc. And as the user clicks on the different spaces, we have this algorithm that tries to find the kind of best fit according to the criteria that the author has set up. So it could be a kind of visual fit, it could be a kind of uh, uh, conceptual split uh, fit. Generative visual so this is a small demo that just GVR gets at some of the kind of, of concerns for back end of the system. system. Traditional Rinku is a type of linked poetry consisting of a series of links between topical elements. The visual rinku described in this demo uses iconic images rendered in a calligraphic style in place of traditional written haiku. Our visual rinku is interactive, requiring users to select from depicted visual elements in order to co-select subsequent imagery with the computer. It is also generative in that subsequent imagery is dynamically composed using a computational framework called the Griot system that provides both visual and conceptual semantic constraints. This means that images are annotated with semantic metadata indicating their meanings at the conceptual and visual levels, and the GRIO system aids in selecting the appropriate next image in response to user input. The demo will present an example work in this new genre in which animated images are composed to form a poetic landscape.
A link between tiles is constrained by both imagic qualities, for example, shape or color, and conceptual qualities, for example, concepts like transportation-related or entertainment-related. So an imagic link implies a visual match, and a conceptual link implies a conceptual match. The images could match visually, but differ conceptually, and vice versa. The juxtaposition of images is also constrained by diagrammatic properties along the edges following cinematic and graphic design conventions like shot size. The final composition is co-created by the system using an algorithm to find homomorphisms between metadata structures and the user clicking on images. Aside from having human-computer interaction design implications, our demo is an artwork intended to have evocative effect. Crossing a contemporary landscape, we often encounter rhythmic repetitions of factories, parking lots, train stations, occasional amusement parks. Punctuating these environmental rhymes executed in banal architecture are rivers, mountains, forests, and ourselves. When a map maker reduces these landscapes to iconic images, she may realize the hallmarks of poetic texts, poignant repetition, surprising juxtapositions, and uncanny renderings of the everyday. Okay, so we don't want to presuppose your interpretation of, of the work, but, but we suggest some of the kind of uh, uh, aims and the kind of orientation towards some of the hallmarks of, uh, of textual uh, poetic composition here. And we have a wide range, again, of kind of transformations and some surprising. So if you go through multiple kind of transportation-related uh, spaces, rather than just picking up the bike, then you start to become uh, the bike, uh, for, for example. We have combinatoric transformations as well as some procedural uh, transformations, such as changing uh, color or, or shape. And I want to contrast that with another project called the Living Liberia Fabric, because it's one using, built using the, similar, the same technologies, but with a kind of more high stakes uh, goal. So the Living Liberia Fabric was produced in affiliation with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Liberia. It's an interactive web-based narrative supporting the goal of memorialization, so lasting peace after 14 years of civil war. So the idea is linking concerns for liberation, dignity, and the future with kind of human rights concerns. And the system is really based in the specificities of Liberian culture and of, of the conflict. And we want to create uh, multiple narratives uh, culturally and aesthetically memorializing the kind of experience of, of stakeholders. The, the idea here is a kind of living fabric. So just a, a, a bit of background. Uh, so. Uh, Liberia, right, as a kind of West African uh, country, was uh, started by the kind of so-called Americo-Liberians, so ex-enslaved uh, 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 colonizers, essentially from the, from the United States. And the kind of history of uh, the kind of, essentially a kind of post-colonial post, uh, uh, replication of the values in, in the United States, uh, it could be said to be at the, at, at the root of a lot of the kind of conflict there. So a series of succession of the kind of American Liberians, then the different, there are 15 different ethnic groups, you know, another group kind of taking uh, uh, power over the previous group, uh, et cetera. So unlike the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Liberia, we can't really trace the causes of, of the conflict and uh, say to something like uh, apartheid, right? There are atrocities, uh, horrendous atrocities uh, committed by all sides there. So in 2005, uh, uh, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf was elected as the first uh, uh, female head of state in, in Africa, and she's the one who started the kind of Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So it was in inaugurated in 2006. 
The goal was to document and, and investigate kind of massive wave of human rights violations, uh, look at, facilitate kind of exchange between victims and perpetrators, uh, and uh, the kind of general goal of mitigating uh, between the kind of value of justice and the value of reconciliation. And so one of the kind of mandates of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was memorialization. And so with a colleague in international affairs, we approached this project and created an interactive narrative in which you have different narratives from different stakeholder points of view that are generated each time the system is run. So every time you run the system, we go through a few different levels. So mourning and reflection, historical context and experience, and kind of peace-related goals. And in order to come up with a system, we undertook a kind of process of uh, artistic designs, so subjective exploration of cultural metaphor, uh, traditional mourning practices, but also a kind of review of peace museums and memorials, uh, user-based analysis, scenario-based design, needs assessment, so tr more traditional kind of uh, ethnographic uh, approaches. And the ending, as I mentioned, was a kind of uh, a fabric, a kind of batik uh, fabric that you navigate based on selecting a kind of particular stakeholder group that could be overlapping. You could have a child soldier or a child combatant or a woman soldier or a woman uh, survivor. And that would decide what populates the next uh, uh, pattern image in, in the fabric. As you select different elements, much like in generative uh, visual Rinku, we end up picking another set of kind of uh, elements that are related conceptually and narratively to, to the previous one. So again, we have a kind of description of the different, of the different uh, elements. So we have themes like activism or empowerment, the different stakeholder groups that it might be related to. Right, that's processed by the system. We create this kind of block of, uh, of uh, LISP uh, data. And I'll, I'll run the system so you can get a sense of, of what, what happens here. And it uses the same system as Lost Under Sea to create that, that text here. So silent moment for the lost youth reflecting. So we'll choose a particular stakeholder. I want to send a greeting up to TRC. I'm doing a song because I want for TRC to help me with my education. Earlier I talked about being angry. That first part of my life was angry with the perpetrators, which meant these ex-child soldiers. When I started working with them, I realized that these young people as as much victim as I am. My son was always with me. I always used to talk to him that I don't want him to leave the house to work go out. Because in having to go out, he will be influenced by his friends to go out there to go and fight. Every day I will see a truck foot with young boys going going to fight. But at the end of the day, when they are coming by, the truck is like empty and the truck is like when people are inside, 
and I will just cry and cry and cry and cry because I'm a woman to see my friends, young boys going out there and they are coming back one I will always cry and pray that God should answer us that they worship come to an end. Up there for right now, but it has a kind of narrative trajectory and an arc that continues with the kind of peace-related themes, uh, finally. And, and again, just to remind us of where, where we are, so the idea is that it was a kind of cultural computing system, so it was based in themes and the kind of particular stakeholder groups, kind of uh, analysis, conversation with stakeholders in a kind of culturally explicit and engaged way in Liberia. And then we created a kind of interactive narrative system that could help to illuminate the themes that were uh, implicit for, for that group. And finally, I want to just talk a bit about uh, critical computing. So critical computing is this ability to say something about the real world, to make an impact, especially to engage disempowering and uh, norms and socio-technical uh, conditions. So in areas like uh, uh, user interface design, social networking, uh, the kind of issues of users' experience and knowledge, social groupings, a facility for social interaction are all intrinsic to the technology. Yet, uh, Although sometimes these kind of systems rely on sociological or anthropological me uh, methods, usually they don't take advantage of the kind of rich, uh, the rich accounts of, say, marginalization from humanistic discourses. Uh, you know, for example, the, the theorists uh, Jeff Bowker and Lee Starr inquire, why should the computer scientist read African-American poets? What does information science have to do with race-critical or feminist methods and metaphysics? While the collective wisdom in those domains is one of the richest places from which to understand these core problems in information systems design, how to preserve the integrity of information without a priori standardization and its often intended violence. If, in turn, uh, those lessons can be taken seriously within the emerging cyber world, there may be a chance to strengthen its democratic ethical aspects. So the idea is we're learning from phenomena, phenomena uh, uh, from social phenomena, we're learning from subjective phenomena. 
Of course, artists have been dealing with this for years. So let's take the case of social identity as, as a kind of case of social identity of critical computing. So Yasumasa Morimura here is a, a Japanese male artist right, in drag as uh, Marilyn Monroe. So he raises questions about his uh, role in, in the kind of mass media art world or kind of luxury art world. So Adrian Piper's mythic being here from 1975 that she inserted into New York Times uh, creates herself again in drag as a kind of African-American male as she purports to embody everything you most hate and fear, right? So uh, as she stuck this fictitious identity into the, uh, uh, the New York Times and performed kind of actions, she created this kind of mythic uh, persona that she felt represented in, in media. So we have artists who create these kind of spectacular representations but at the same time, in everyday uh, uh, experiences, we have this fluidly nuanced ability to vary our gesture patterns, our discourse, our posture, our fashion with astounding sensitivity for context. However, in uh, computational systems, we have this kind of situation, and I won't go through all of these, but for example, uh, a number of popular games where change is driven by combat, spatial exploration, and uh, object acquisition. We have uh, attributes reduced to numerical statistics. Uh, states like uh, I mentioned at the very beginning with gray owl, uh, uncertainty becoming or kind of blended identities are difficult to represent. So this is, is just to summarize what I see as, as some, of, uh, some of the kind of issues that we can do uh, better than, you know, to give very specific examples, even in, in some uh, obvious way in a game like Elder Scrolls IV Oblivion, we, you'll find uh, default characteristics where you say the female orc is by default uh, initially 10 points more intelligent than her male counterpart, right? So you have the kind of ostensibly uh, Norwegian character who is uh, a Nord here who is uh, 30 intelligence, which is uh, 20 points less intelligent than its uh, Breton counterpart, right? So that's the ostensibly French group within the world. The interesting thing here is that it's not just like a critique of Laura Croft in terms of graphics, right? This is built into the computational uh, infrastructure. But we can go uh, further. So this is from uh, Neverwinter Nights where you have actually race represented using this kind of abstract uh, uh, data type. And we have uh, blood color associated with uh, race, right? So essentially you could boil it down to something like the former uh, one drop uh, rule in, in, in some kind of uh, sense, right? It's that you have the kind of affordances to represent a kind of very limited uh, notion of kind of, uh, of uh, race and uh, ethnicity. And the point here is just, of course, people do astoundingly interesting and improvisational things with these characters, but we still have this kind of infrastructural level that enforces uh, values upon uh, the uh, participants. So in our research, we identified about six uh, different kind of components besides numerical stats, flat uh, data files, uh, procedural animation, et cetera, that are used to represent computational identities, both in social networking and in games, and we're looking for ways that we can do more. And there's some works that start to move in that direction. So Shadows of the Colossus, you have a character where you, you're morally culpable in, in the game. You just go around slaying these huge creatures that aren't doing anything to anyone. So it's your selfish motivation to bring your princess back to life. You have to slay these uh, beasts. And as you go through, your character actually becomes subtly stained as, as you move through the story. Even more, you have limited agency in some areas. So you slay the beast. You can run around for a moment, but no matter what, you're going to get pierced by these uh, black bolts and have to restart and slay another beast. 
So in some way, it gives you agency immediately, but you have no agency over the ultimate narrative arc. So it essentially forces you to become the, the kind of villain through the game. Uh, another example of a kind of transforming characters from Fable, where you have this, uh, you can, based on your actions, you have different eventualities, a kind of stereotyped, a good and evil eventuality. Uh, yet, in both of these cases, I see it as a kind of very limited and linear kind of transformation, right? It's just one dimension of kind of moral uh, change. You know, something which is technically less sophisticated, but maybe conceptually more interesting, is Jason Rohr's Passage, that some of you know. So this is a game where, as you move from uh, uh, left to right, navigating a space, so on each time step you move just a bit further over, you uh, age, and uh, your partner ages, uh, eventually passes away, and you do as well. And the game always ends the same. It's a memento mori, so it's a tradition of, of, fine, of, uh, of uh, fine arts. And the interesting thing here is that it represents a kind of a basic metaphor, life as, as a journey. So as you move from left to right, you have this kind of mapping from uh, a journey onto kind of life overall. You transform uh, visually, but there are also some other kind of tightly controlled constraints. So if you have a partner, you can't navigate through some of the narrow constraints here. It becomes more difficult to, to move in, in the game. Right? So you have some kind of interesting uh, metaphor that Roar's uh, created. What we'd like to do is go much further uh, with a dynamic character models. So uh, models that change based on your action and your context. Uh, new models of categorization of, of users, models that integrate, say, games and social networks, so what you do in one realm might inf influence in some interesting way what you do in the other, uh, and looking at ways that a social stigma and bias are built into infrastructure and seeing how we can do something more uh, interesting. So I won't go in, into depth here, but the idea is we're looking both at the computational representation, but also how is, it, how is how we categorize each other cognitively different than the way that games categorize us? And how is the way that we construct our identities through an action and performance different than the way that infrastructure forces us to represent ourselves? And how are those used hand in hand with, uh, with each other? So we start off, and uh, we, we do look at code, algorithmic complexity, knowledge representation, et cetera. We also look at the role of uh, the human. Right, so HCI, uh, uh, human-computer interaction, you look at a lot of the kind of affordances the system provides you with, how robust the system is. But what about the author? What about the values of the author who constructed the system? How do those values get reified in the computational infrastructure? And what about the way that the author describes the system to, to users, right? So we have this kind of broader uh, context, the way that they uh, publish the system, and the way that they put it out into the world. And then we have further uh, than, than that, a kind of socio-data ecology, where we have this kind of system of, uh, of exchange of, of values. So this re relates to uh, the notion of uh, actor network theory for some of you who are, are, are interested in sociology of, of science. So you have these actors that each encode their own uh, values. So we take a kind of broader perspective in which we both look at underlying code, but we also look at social and cultural factors. And well, what do we do? We make some uh, systems. So this is just a, a small uh, prototype system, but just to illustrate this idea that, say, based on what you do within, within the world, you could have just easy, uh, kind of combinatory changes, you beg, 
and you're more uh, commerce related, you start to pick up the apparel of a tycoon. If you exercise, you have some other kind of combinatoric uh, change. Right, so essentially have a kind of separation between the physical actions and the kind of internal uh, conception of self, much like, say, W.E.B. Du Bois' notion of double consciousness. How do you see yourself versus how others uh, see you that we've externalized in, in the system? And we have actions that you perform in different contexts. So whether you do the action in the uh, suburbs or in the office space, you have different results. Not just these kind of combinatoric results, but also procedural results, like changing the intimacy of the camera angle, uh, for example. We have a system that we made for Facebook called Define Me Chimera. So this is a system where users can define each other's avatars using commonplace animal metaphors. So you can append data, metadata to each other's profiles. So you could say that uh, uh, Beth is courageous like a, a, a lion and uh, Fox is uh, ostentatious like a peacock, uh, for example, and based on what your friends cumulatively say about you, then you construct a kind of chimera-like ha hybrid avatar. So like in eBay, you have the communal uh, rating of the seller, uh, uh, right? So this person is a horrible seller. We have some kind of communal metaphor here, but it's not just along uh, one dimension, and it's along dimensions chosen by that particular uh, 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 audience. So this idea that we're not constructed just uh, on our own, we're our identities are uh, co-constructed. And it's also this notion of torqued identity. So again, from Bowker and Starr, that your self-conception may be quite different than the kind of social conception uh, uh, that, that others have of you. So it's just taking these kind of notions and seeing what can we do in order to implement them w within these systems. So using the same underlying structure, we made a kind of, uh, one of my master's students created a kind of social networking site. Uh, it's a social networking site for non-friends. So it's called Identity Share, and the idea is that uh, you, you can go in, you can create your own kind of label, uh, uh, labels, uh, fields here. Uh, you can use some of the normative ones, like gender or age, but you can also create your own whimsical ones, like what show I'm watching, Elton John or Billy Joel. So whatever you want to uh, create there, right? So <laughs> you can prioritize them and mark what's, what's really important to you. Maybe this uh, musical taste question is more important to you than, than uh, uh, gender. And you can, so we have some algorithmic uh, uh, back end that can find people who are quite different than you or who are uh, quite similar to you. You can have impromptu communities that are formed on the fly, even in possibly narrow communities. So someone who likes Elton John, whose favorite uh, meal is breakfast, loves playing horseshoes, eating bacons, and has uh, sideburns. So there's probably not many people. There's only one user in this community. But what about everyone who's interested in a particular kind of medical ailment, for, for, for example, and lives in a particular geographical region? So we can find people who are uh, quite similar in that way. You don't actually uh, uh, connect with them here. You can just exchange messages for, the, for people. Also, you can share your browsing pattern uh, anonymously so people can see everyone that fits the profile of Elton John fan and, li and lives in Cambridge. Uh, well, what are they looking at on the web? And so you can look at the way people perform their identities, not just the way that they label themselves here. So in some way, we're looking at a small set of uh, 
constraints and what can we do using a more interesting system of underlying system of categorization. Where we don't have predefined categories, we just have clusters of attributes that are defined by uh, users and then we can uh, look at a kind of gradient relationship of people to, the, to those attributes. It's not that all members of a category share some s similar set of, uh, of uh, characteristics. And so we have a wide range of applications to, to the underlying technologies that we're building. So for example, uh, dynamic uh, avatars that change appearance to reflect the actions that users have taken, games that foster social critique of say prejudice or uh, uh, ability, for, for example, uh, educational software that adapts uh, student problem items to their kind of current uh, uh, cultural identities. So we have a kind of range of applications that could be built using the kind of model that we've described here. So this is what, what the uh, uh, NSF Career Award right now is supporting. It's called the Advanced uh, Identity Representation uh, Project, essentially creating a toolkit to deal with some of these kind of more subjective and cultural uh, identity issues. So I've shown a lot of uh, work, but remember the original goal was, was addressing this question. How can the computer support and enable forms of human imagination and expression with the same facility and power as literary or other arts? And finally, all of these systems that, I, that I've discussed and the associated theory that, that I mentioned utilize uh, AI and Coxine models uh, to be sure, but they're really in close dialogue with uh, social sciences, with humanities, issues like gender performativity, social classification, stigma, narrative of personal experience, and the other issues of the phantasmal. So in short, the ICE lab is really focused on a kind of interdisciplinary perspective using novel uh, methods, but trying to address a kind of computational uh, based imaginative visions, meaningful experiences and expressive statements that we hope could lead to real world insight and action. Thank you. folks. Um, my question has a bit to do with um, you know, the, the work that you do is really artistic. I mean, you're trying to express something, and yet one of the struggles that we have when we are working research and producing works of art is how, where do we leave inspiration? Where do we leave, you know, what is the artistic part of it? You know, we're so scientific and preparing our methods that the expressive part, what, what does it fit? I mean, I'm, I'm seeing it in my own work and I'm just wondering like, if you have any insights or if you, if you think that there's, it's another type of work of art when we're doing it for research. Uh, well, no, so, that, the, so there are a few answers to that question. So I could say for me, the expressive side of it is really the leading question, right? So we have a kind of set of toolkits, right? We have, uh, whether it's our, theory from the, from the humanities of, of narrative, or whether it's our kind of engineering approach from artificial intelligence, really we're approaching it with the kind of subjective aims at, at uh, the, the core. And so the questions that we want to ask are, well, 
we have these tools that don't often seem fit to some, to some of the kind of questions that we're asking, but we also have some amazing power of those tools, right? So to dynamically reconfigure meanings on, on the fly. And we know humans are great at uh, creating uh, associations, but how can we leverage that in some interesting uh, way that might have some socially transformative effect? So really that's at the core of the inquiry here. So if we're bringing in theory or technology, it's only to serve that kind of artistic and humanistic uh, goal. But the idea is you don't have to have utilitarian or productivity oriented outcomes in order to use engineering methods. So I talk about some uh, kind of engineering approaches or AI-based uh, approaches here, but that doesn't mean that uh, we subscribe to those values, right? Those values are usually the system should be able to generalize and be uh, mass-produced in, in some kind of way. It should have a productive aim, right? So. Uh, you might know this notion, the critical technical practice. So the uh, AI lab alum here, Phil Agri, mentioned this kind of idea, which is you're interrogating the practice that you're involved in as you engage in that practice. And so when I mentioned critical computing, there's another aspect of it, which is it is a critical technical practice. We're scrutinizing our values. And in the Living Liberia Fabric, for example, we had a lot of discussions. So I'd show the ethnographic methods, but then we also went back and looked at uh, how do we understand the kind of phenomenological experience of mourning in Liberia by talking to people. I had people come in, I mean, tragically one man whose own son was abducted to become a child soldier, right, and who collected a range of narratives there. So I mean, the human component is you know, driving the work uh, uh, as well, and is really in some way at the core of the work. So, um I'm really fascinated by this. And one thing that really interests me was that it seems as though in parts of your work, there's kind of a tension almost between the, the question of like identity and truth or representation and the, the concept of performance. You know, uh, many of the things that you were demoing seem like they relate very deeply to this concept of at most pseudonymity, the idea that you are, you know, responsible, you're part of a community with your friends and so on. But then other pieces um, seem like they're a little bit more friendly to experimentation. When you brought up the example of a uh, uh, gray owl, I was sort of interested in that because it seemed like it was, it was this, uh, it was really uh, highlighting that point of tension, the idea that there's, there's play and performance, but then there's also this issue of, of truth and identity. Could you talk a little bit about that? Right, so loosely I could characterize some of the works he produced in its sort of two sides. So we have works that are aimed at kind of social critique and critical awareness, and so some of those just want to uh, provoke, to instigate, and so it might be the case that it actually is a model of a particular kind of social prejudice, which is implicit in a game like uh, Grand Theft Auto, for, for example, but why not just implement racial profiling in the, in the system, right? It might have a more interesting kind of social critique, and that's a kind of provocative effect. Another set of the, of the work is a kind of socially empowering aim. So it's we have this ability to self-represent in kind of expressive ways in the real world that uh, the games and uh, social networking sites don't really capture. And so one of the observations there actually comes from cognitive science of classification, which is that mostly people think that classification occurs based on this folk model, which is just everyone in a certain category or anything in a certain category has some shared set of attributes. And that's a kind of very a kind of naive folk understanding that uh, is implicitly built into a lot of these infrastructures. So why not look at what people actually do, which is Sometimes we create a kind of salient example. Well, I knew one of those before, or I experienced that before. And then you say, well, that must be what the entire group is like. It's a kind of conceptual metonymy, you know, the part standing in for the whole. And so the, but uh, 
that's a kind of phenomenon that we encounter. It's not necessarily a positive phenomenon to try to model, right? The idea of an ideal, you know, this is the kind of ideal husband, or this is the kind of ideal, uh, say, uh, medical practitioner, uh, right? That stands in for, for the, the whole. But what we're much more interested in is taking some of these kind of notions that, comes, that come from COGSI, that come from subjective, uh, uh, humanistic accounts of something like Grayal's passing, and then say, well, why can't these infrastructures do so? And what would it take to make them be able to do so? Sometimes it could be used in an interesting self-expressive way. You know, this artist, uh, Micah Cardenas, out at uh, UCSD, who did a 365-hour durational performance as a dragon, as a kind of metaphor for being in uh, drag before uh, undergoing a kind of uh, uh, transgender uh, uh, transition, uh, right? So that's a kind of performance artist using these affordances in a kind of provocative uh, way. But at the same time, something like identity share might actually have some useful effects for uh, connecting people and trying to understand the kind of uh, perspective uh, of, of another. So uh, I think there is that kind of uh, tension maybe in, in the in two different kinds of works, but I don't see them as uh, separate from, from uh, one another. Yes. I was intrigued by your, uh, the, the notion of uh, cultural computing. Uh, you quoted someone saying that uh, any kind of cultural model, uh, computing model is culturally based, but you're not quite ready to go there. See, I thought that where you were going to go was to get us beyond, let's say, the Google view of the world where we um, annotate world uh, according to a word, or at best, a collocation of a few words. Mm -hmm. And to go beyond that and to look at you know, notions, cultural, semantic notions with which we function on a day-to-day -day basis and to be able to, to do searches across those notions and to be able to, to compute across those notions. But I wasn't sure if that was how i supposed to understand your notion of cultural computing because you, you mentioned uh, that you're interested in bringing in cultural values that are often set aside, which is a very different notion from the semantic web type of uh, approach. All right, so I, so I have a couple of responses to that. So. The first thing that, that you mentioned, the kind of uh, limitations of the Google semantic web kind, kind of approach, that I, that I think I address more in the notion of subjective computing and with this idea of, well, what's a subjective ontology? And so, it, so people might know an ontology in computer science, ontology is a kind of knowledge specification about the world. And so the idea here is, well, that uh, ontology is it comes from somewhere, right? So a lot of AI projects assume a kind of objective reality of that ontology. So something like the Psych Project, right, tries to create this kind of global uh, uh, ontology, a kind of common sense ontology. Rather, what I'm interested in here is allowing people to describe very highly contextualized and specific ontologies that might come from specific research. So we, as I mentioned, we actually talk to people as a kind of proxy community, Liberian refugees in, in Atlanta. Right? My colleague in international affairs has ongoing research in Liberia. So all of the kind of annotation there is culturally uh, rooted. Right? So we didn't just come up with some kind of uh, general specification for what mourning should look like. Rather, we created a kind of highly subjective and specific contextualized annotation and a thought about how that could allow the narrative to improvise, uh, to, uh, to be improvised based on those values. So changing the narrative based on which stakeholder's perspective you're, you're interested in. So, so that's you know, just an answer to this question of how I see it as a bit different than the kind of, say, totalizing psych project, semantic web kind of goal. Rather, we want to be able to create something where a kind of 
artists could go in. So that's why it was in uh, XML, right? We could just have an easy representation for very localized ideas and then use those, then apply AI methods to think, how could you improvise media with that? So the second part of it, which was cultural computing, well, an example uh, of cultural computing would be you know, some of the early interactive poetry that I created was inspired by a kind of model of uh, oral tradition, kind of oral literature. And so what we, what we thought was, uh, there's an author named Nugugi Wathiango, Kenyan, Kenyan author, who made this observation that a lot of the kind of narratives we encounter sort of uh, uh, online and digitally may be much more like oral narratives in some way than written narratives because we have kind of physical body and space. We have kind of interaction between the user and the kind of audience sometimes. We have a kind of uh, mise-en-scene, uh, uh, you know, the kind of everything that's in the environment. Uh, we have architectural space. That's a lot different than a lot of interactive narrative projects that pick a kind of favorite narrative theory to describe clauses, you know, the uh, introduction, uh, conclusion, et cetera. And so we took this kind of this uh, oral narrative theory and implemented the kind of work that's based in that particular kind of uh, cultural uh, model. And so uh, in, in the other work, the Gender Visual Rinku project, the idea is, well, we know that we want to look at the kind of connection between text and image. There's a lot of theory out there that connects the two and the kind of theory uh, that uh, cognitive science theory looking at Chinese characters actually dealt with that issue. So by foregrounding a kind of cultural concern that might have been marginalized in kind of traditional computer science uh, practice, we're able to make some insights and advances, I think. And then the other part of that, which I didn't get into here, is that when you don't foreground the kind of cultural values explicitly, like in a lot of good, good old-fashioned artificial intelligence uh, projects, uh, well, you end up with some kind of values or uh, ch challenges or maybe even unattainable goals. And so uh, Terry Winograd from Fernando Flores' well-known book, Understanding Computers and Cognition, looks at the kind of grounding of artificial intelligence practices in a particular kind of Western rationalistic thought. And so this is a kind of the AI pioneer, right? Terry Winograd, who rejected a lot of his early concerns based on a philosophical account of the kind of values that AI practice was uh, was embedded in, and he actually suggested that certain AI goals were unattainable uh, ba based on this uh, analysis. So that's the other kind of side of, of cultural computing, which is if you look at the kind of cultural values underlie practices, you might be able to avoid roadblocks. You might be able to come up with new innovative systems that do something a bit differently than, than other systems. So that's really the kind of aim when I talk about uh, kind of values and uh, embedded ethical values with some of the kind of cultural computing approaches. So, Fox, uh, I was yes. really fascinated by the AI uh, systems you built. This is actually the second time that I uh, heard you talk, so I'm getting a step closer to truly understanding what you're doing. I, I have a question uh, about, um, about the constraints and uh, what the constraints that may be inherent um, in the systems that you are building. And in conjunction, well, constraints that you can see that you are struggling with. And in conjunction with this question, I'm also curious about the kind of debates that are raging in the AI field, in the field of transformational computation, in the field of interactive narrative performances. So two, two questions, the, the constraint and the, and, and the burning issues in the field. So, so you want me to say what I see as some of the constraints, first of all, and then what I see as some of the burning uh, questions that, that exist. So, well, there are, 
there are a number of constraints, both good <laughs> constraints and, uh, and uh, negative constraints. So one of the kind of constraints here is that uh, the systems I showed today are largely closed systems. So when you say that it's generating meaning, it's a kind of uh, combinatoric generation, uh, usually. So in, for example, in generating poetry, we're not just mixing uh, words together. We have an underlying meaning structure. So you, so you have an idea like a, an emotion or a space, like a bedroom space. Well, you know certain things about that space, like a sleeper is a person who uh, lays on a bed or uses a pillow. So we have some kind of uh, description of what, what's in uh, uh, that space. But of course, that's a, it's, the good thing about that is it's a highly uh, contextualized, highly specific description constructed by an artist to have the kind of evocative effects we want. The negative side of it is uh, where are we going to get other information uh, from? So if we could connect it up to another system, like some of the kind of work that uh, Henry Lieberman is doing here with the Open Mind Project, which is a kind of uh, common sense system, we might be able to have more interesting kind of generative work because it's not going to be a closed system. You know, the challenge there is that when you use this open-ended kind of large-scale system that tries to encode common sense, well, you don't have the kind kind of uh, highly specified meanings, the kind of artistically defined meanings that we, ha we have here. So there's a tension between the kind of open-ended system that can bring in knowledge uh, sort of at will and the kind of highly specific system that can improvise based on artistic, uh, an artist's uh, specifications. So that's one kind of uh, constraint here. Some of the other kind of constraints I just meant to illustrate. So when you have the character walking in Chameleonia shadow play and you just have a uh, say a top hat pop up or you have a vest fade in or Karl Marx hair fade in when you deal with ideology. Well, those are just stand-ins. The idea is that we have kind of combinatoric set of possibilities for changing different elements of the character when you have a graphical model. You have other procedural possibilities such as scaling, you know, kind of rendering transformations. So I just want to suggest that you have these different dimensions along which to play. But the system in some ways is quite is rudimentary there. It's just a flash system. Another more profound idea dealing with constraints is this idea is constraints in some way are our friends here because in creating an identity system, we're not trying to create this kind of grand totalizing identity system that obliterates all stigma and prejudice or that allows people to create whatever kind of character that they want. Rather, we want to create a toolkit so you can deal with sort of specific social issues or specific identity representations for a specific goal. So it's going in the other direction in some way to have kind of more nuanced possibilities for statements in a game or in, in a kind of narrative. So in that sense, the, the kind of challenge is, well, how do we let people set those constraints themselves in a meaningful way for a particular application? So that's a kind of constraint here that is uh, useful. The, the issue is, how can we just target those uh, constraints? So some of the kind of more open-ended que uh, uh, questions in the field of, uh, of interactive uh, narrative, well, some of them I just provoke myself because I see a lot of these systems as implementing, say, some particular favorite theory of uh, narrative. So I mentioned Vladimir Propp's uh, morphology of the Russian folktale. Right? So there are probably 100 systems out there that take something like what Vladimir Propp did as a formalist system, boils stories down to some set of kind of functions, and then uses those functions to create some kind of story on the fly. So in some way, what, what I'm trying to do here is to think, let's go to a level below that kind of narrative specification, which is usually culturally specific, usually from a kind of series of, uh, of names in uh, narratology, which are mostly uh, kind of uh, continental uh, names. 
and rather look at more specific kind of narrative models, kind of culturally embedded narrative models. So narrative models that are, are say, less typically uh, uh, encountered in engineering. And then even more than that, going to what's a level beneath that. So a lot of the work that we do is based on conceptual integration, taking concepts, blending them together, generating new concepts, mapping one concept onto another as a kind of metaphor. And so some way, what I'm really interested in here is a level below the kind of narrative level. How can we construct particular meanings, metaphors, and themes that can then be used within the, the uh, narratives? And how can we make sure we have either evocative constraints or common sense constraints on the way that those meanings are, are constructed. So I think in some way it's going orthogonal to what a lot of the kind of interactive narrative projects are trying to do when they try to formalize kind of social uh, narrative uh, uh, meanings. And then finally, I could say that a lot of the kind of work tries to create logical, mathematical representations, which we do as well. They're algebraic uh, rep representations uh, for something like uh, uh, narrative, but we're, uh, and usually a kind of grand kind of narrative, plot-based narrative. You make sure you have a kind of story arc and climax and resolution, et cetera. We're interested in a more, uh, uh, say, open and subaltern kind of narrative. So everyday narratives, you know, the kind of exchange of gossip, the way that we construct our identities through our life stories, right? So thinking about these other kind of notions of narrative that if you just try to create the kind of uh, grand story arc, you might not uh, achieve. And that might be a lot more interesting for, say, gameplay or networking than just creating a kind of well-recognized uh, uh, Hollywood or turn of the century uh, style psychological novel as an interactive narrative system. Yes. Um, so I had a lot of questions, but um, I just wanted to ask one. So I don't, um, let's see, not to kind of create a polarity or a kind of set of distinctions that, does, that don't exist, you know, between your kind of, um, you know, this different kind of classification of these different kinds of things you're talking about. It struck me that in the example you gave for effective, the effective computing, um, section, a lot of the material was kind of created by you or created by the members of your project, right? The text was kind of emerged from yourself or from the project and the, the visuals did too. And in the third prod, in the third category in the critical computing section, uh, you know, the Liberia project, which was, I think, you know, very, very, very resonant. Um, so much of that seemed to be actually built out of uh, this kind of documentary or ethnographic work, right? Like the right. sounds and the actual texts and voices of other people and their faces and, you know, it looked like they're artifacts if that was what you were using to, for the batik. And so I was just wondering, um, given that sort of difference, like how does that, I'm just wondering what kind of, there seems like there's kind of ethical, there are potentially like ethical, technical, and maybe like affective implications to those two different ways of getting source material, um, especially given that kind of like identity and the construction of identity is sort of at the core of what's motivating a lot of the work. So that was kind of my, my question or how you felt about uh, that. Right. So that's, that's a great question. And so uh, to get at the kind of ethical issue with the kind of, uh, the kind of video and the kind, the kind of images uh, there, so I, I did, maybe I didn't uh, frame this. Uh, at the beginning, so where where those videos come from? A lot of them come from my colleagues. Right. You know, right. But it's it's a it's a good question because especially for a kind of venue like this, where I'm just putting up in the screen as a kind of tech demo rather than so, so actually, I mean, I hope that it would have some kind of impact related to memorialization goals, but it's a bit artificial to show it as a kind of demonstration of 
technology or even a kind of artistic demonstration to say there's some facility with aesthetic nuance if that's what people uh, found or maybe failure at that with aesthetic nuance but uh, but uh, in actually showing the, the kind of work we were in contact again with one of the commissioners for the truth and reconciliation commission the videos were collected uh, it, say in uh, remote uh, uh, small villages in, in Liberia with a colleague who actually had a system. He drove around in, in, a, in a, a van that had a, a kind of character that helped people who might not be print or uh, computer literate record their stories. And people knew that they were going into this kind, in a kind of public domain uh, system. Essentially, people felt like they had some hope that they could have their voices uh, presented in, in some, ki some kind of uh, way. Some of the other footage was uh, from a kind of documentary that we licensed the footage from and uh, were in contact with the different people who were uh, within it. So, so people are aware that we were able to use their, their images there. And then there's also, we didn't see as much of it in this version, archival uh, footage from say turn of the century or early 20th century uh, Liberia. And, and so the, the footage there is used with the kind of knowledge of the kind of participants who were uh, involved. But you know, still there is that kind of uh, issue and tension where if you present it in different settings, well, then it has a different kind of meaning. Ideally, this would be situated first on the web so that kind of diaspora Liberians would have access to it. We thought a lot about kind of who has access to the system, would be facilitated in Liberia. And then the goal is also after people go through a particular narrative, then they could save that uh, narrative and then use that with uh, their friends. And so sort of show the particular narrative that you created through navigating the system. So we wanted to have some kind of emergent properties that we can use to disseminate. You know, the the other part of your question is that there is a difference between the two kind of systems. And so what we hopefully can do is provide the affordances that could yield a range of different kind of artistic uh, works. And so the way that I run the Ice Lab uh, studio usually is we have some shared set of concerns, say for a semester, like we're thinking about cognitive categorization and the issues of, uh, of uh, kind of nuanced dynamic identity. And so we'll read in that, in that kind of area and think, well, what if we added centrality gradients to this representation in Facebook or on a social networking site? What could that provoke? And then we'll develop some underlying technologies that could be shared, but I want people to have their individual kind of authorial directions with each kind of project. So the Chameleonia shadow play project uh, directed, but some aspects of it were largely determined by the kind of students' aesthetic uh, interests uh, as well. Lost Under Sea was more kind of my aesthetic uh, uh, work there. The idea is we have in a studio, usually you don't want to just dictate what everyone should do. We had to negotiate this to say, we have some underlying technology we think will be useful for everyone. Identity share was a master's thesis. I used the same technology as, excuse me, define me, which was jointly created. And then we have a range of kind of artistic eventualities that we hope the system could be, uh, could be used for. So that's one way we uh, try to navigate th those kind of tensions. Um, I was interested in um, the section you were talking about critical computing. Um, I, uh, a lot of the examples you were showing were about individual choice and um, making the program suit uh, particular uh, individuals. And I was interested in um, perhaps you talking more about how this work can also be used by community activists as a way to mobilize, but also a way to um, unsettle people, you know, unsettle the user um, themselves, you know, so that they can't always make choices. 
um, so that the, the game or the program doesn't um, proceed a certain way? Oh, right. So that's, that's a great question as well. One of, the, one of the areas I'm really interested in is how you can use agency as an expressive resource in, in the systems. And so a lot of time we're interested in what are some ways to constrain uh, agency. So actually we have a paper about this. We call it uh, agency play. So we look at agency. It's not just free will within some kind of virtual world or narrative world where you can do sort of whatever you want and still get a good story or still a good, good, good gaming experience. You know, so that's a, in some way a kind of naive model for agency, agency as free will. You know, there's a lot of work on agency. So you, you mentioned, so uh, Sonia Roberts' uh, skin pack for Quake, that was one where she created female skins for the uh, game uh, Quake and then mapped them on top of the uh, uh, characters as a kind of feminist act of resistance. So that's kind of agency as resistance. Right? There are some works in which you say there should be uh, no agency as a kind of commentary. So Ian Bogos' uh, uh, work where you have a kind of Kinko's Copies uh, uh, game. It's called Disaffected. You're a Kinko's Copies uh, employee, and you just can move around. Sometimes you get addled, and you can't figure out what you want to do. The copies appear here or there, and sometimes your character controls work backwards, and you can't really control the character. So it's really just capturing the kind of frustrating experience of this kind of corporate uh, copy shop through reduction of agency. Sh uh, the Shadow of the Colossus that I mentioned, that makes you kind of morally culpable, right, in some way through, through the deployment of, of agency there. So I think some of those kind of strategies where you think about not just uh, say the relationship between the user agency and the system agency. I didn't show a project where you have a, a character where if you act angrily all the time, then you start seeing the world actually differently in this interactive uh, fiction. Right? You, the, the metaphors used to describe the, the world seem, say, more uh, angry. Sometimes a character might even start acting autonomously of its own accord and just start doing things you didn't mean it to do after you've already set up at the beginning where you could just control it as an as a avatar, as just a proxy for your interactions. So those are kind of disruptive strategies that, that I think and, you know, after you have the agency relationship, you can think about is it local agency or global agency? Does it change over time? Or how does user input change the kind of agency? So that's some of the kind of work that, uh, you know, that some of the kind of disruptive strategies that we have. And then again, thinking about very targeted kind of social uh, issues. Like I use the uh, Gray Owl example because there's a lot going on uh, there, right? It's uh, deceptive, right? It's tie built, ties into this kind of uh, uh, myth, right, of, of a, a kind of a noble return to nature, right, so there's a lot that's charged there, but what would it mean to create a kind of system where you could start to untangle all of that through the kind of experience within the system, rather than just saying, well, he could just change the character's skin, and then he just looks like something else, and it's a kind of naive cultural tourism, you know, I'm not really interested in something like that, rather I'm interested in really getting at what are the kind of contentious issues, and to do, to do that, you need more than just graphics. We need some kind of underlying meanings, and those underlying meanings need to be specified according to the author to have variation along uh, very useful and critical uh, constraints. So those are a few of the kind of uh, directions we're going with that kind of work. All right, well, thank you.